Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And it is time to continue our dive into the history and evolution of the PlayStation line of consoles. In our last episode in this series, which was the second one, I talked about how the success of the PS1 led right into the even bigger success of the PS2. This is one of those rare cases where the sequel outperforms the original. The PlayStation 2 was a phenomenal success. I also talked about how the DualShock controller debuted late into the life cycle of the PS1, and that the PS2 version became the real basis for all DualShock-style controllers moving forward with some exceptions, but I didn't spend any time talking about how those controllers actually work, so I thought I should give a moment to do that before we continue down the path of the history of the consoles, because this is tech stuff. We do talk about how tech works, and besides, I I like using these histories as a way to introduce people to different types of technologies. So, the original PlayStation 1 controller did not have the analog thumbsticks. It had 14 buttons, And those were uh, the eight that I've already mentioned in the previous episode, the four direction buttons on the left side and the four action buttons on the right side. Can't wait for people to yell at me for calling something that was pink, red, or whatever. But uh, I was looking at a really bad photo and I didn't have my PlayStation controller in front of me. And this just tells you I don't play the PlayStation very much. Anyway, the action that the buttons did all depended on the game, right? It might be a jump button or a weapon button, or it might have you speak or whatever. In between those two banks of buttons are a pair of buttons labeled start and select. And typically games would map these to functions like pause or an inventory button or to back out of a menu or something similar to that. Then on the back of the controller, or rather on the the side of the controller that faces the television, some people call it the front of the controller, Um, But anyway, it's facing the same way you are toward the TV. There are four shoulder buttons, two on the left and two on the right, mounted in a top bottom uh, configuration. And under each button inside the controller is a metal disc. Pressing on the button means that the button presses against the metal disc, which deforms, and a thin conductive strip that's mounted above a circuit board inside the controller is pushed so that it makes some contact with that circuit board. And that acts like an on switch in a regular old circuit. It completes a circuit. So when you press down on the button, you complete that circuit, you let current move through that particular path, and that sends a signal to the game system that that specific button has been pressed and that the game maps that to whatever input it's uh, it's it's keyed to so that your character or whatever in the game does whatever it is supposed to do. The PS2's DualShock 2 controllers introduced a new feature with those buttons. They were pressure sensitive. So it wasn't just that you could push the buttons. It was how you push the buttons that would determine actions in certain games. So game developers could actually design games in which the gameplay would change depending on how hard they pressed a button. So a game developer could program a game so that if you tapped on a button, you might do a little hop in the game. But pushing harder on the button would make your character do a full jump in the game. Or you could map a melee attack button so that if you tapped on it, you just gave a little love tap to somebody. And if you held the button down nice and hard, you'd really wallop them. 
So how did they do that from a tech perspective? Well, it's similar to what I already described, except when you push lightly on the button, only a small portion of that conductive strip would make contact with the circuit. It'd be pressed down and make a light point of contact on the circuit. If you pressed harder, then more of the conductive strip would make more of a contact with a circuit board and the change in conductivity gets registered by the PS2. It's essentially metering that. It's measuring it. So the PS2 is looking not just from a, for a signal and where it's from, but how strong that signal is, if you can think of it that way, and then interprets that as the appropriate in-game action. Now, I should add that this is a feature that wouldn't last through all DualShock controllers after the DualShock 2. Sony would end up dropping this further down the line, and that caused some gamers frustration because it meant that if they were playing older games uh, on newer consoles, let's say you buy a new console that's got some backwards compatibility to it, and you want to play an old game that had this capability built into it, well, your current controller no longer has that function. So their game is somewhat hampered because of it. That's one of the, the risks of including new features in hardware because further down the line in a, a future iteration, you might drop that feature and you might lose some access to legacy software. This applies not just to video game consoles, to everything, really. Anyway, at that point, you could argue that some of those games would turn into abandonware because you couldn't play them properly. Getting back to the controller, the thumbsticks are analog, and they rely on potentiometers, which in turn are variable resistors. And that means that these components create electrical resistance in a circuit. And these components are adjustable so that you can change the amount of electrical resistance that is applied. And yeah, if you're like me, a sentence like that doesn't necessarily clear stuff up right away. So let's break it all down. Resistance is what it sounds like. It describes how a particular material resists the flow of electricity through it. And it's kind of like friction. If you think of a surface, like a rough surface, having a lot of friction, trying to push something across it is really hard. Trying to push something across a very smooth surface is much easier. You still have friction, but not nearly as much. Well, the same is true with electrical conductivity. Conductive materials have some level of electrical resistance. Some of them allow electricity to pass through pretty easily, and some don't. And like friction, typically the byproduct you get, you know, because you're losing that energy somehow. Energy cannot be created or destroyed, but it can be converted Instead of that being electrical energy, you're losing it in the form of heat. So your electronics heat up because they're not perfect conductors. And uh, so that's, that's kind of a basic description of electrical resistance. And a lot of stuff can affect the resistance of a particular type of material. You know, you, you can't just say that copper has a specific electrical resistance uh, because things like the thickness of a copper wire can determine that. The thinner a copper wire, the higher the resistance. So if you have a thick copper cable, it has a much lower electrical resistance than a thin copper wire. But also temperature can affect it. If you cool conductors down, then their resistance decreases. That's why things like the Large Hadron Collider have these super cooled uh, elements to make superconductors. And those are conductors in which you don't lose any electrical energy at all to heat. It, they it just, what you put in is what's getting out the other side, essentially. Potentiometers are slightly different. 
They have components that let you adjust the amount of resistance that's in a circuit. You can turn it up or turn it down. And that allows you to control the amount of current flowing through a circuit, assuming you've got a, a constant voltage. And if you want to think about it in terms of pipes and water, a potentiometer is kind of like an adjustable valve that can either let more or less water through it. And I'm oversimplifying here just to kind of give you an analogy, but you get the point. So back to the controller. The thumbsticks on the DualShock controller have two potentiometers each, and they're under the controllers, and they're mounted at right angles to one another. And the what happens is when you move the thumbstick, it changes the potentiometers slightly, and current flows through these at a steady rate. As you move the thumbstick, it changes the resistance in those potentiometers, and by monitoring the current flowing through these circuits, the PlayStation can determine the exact position of that thumbstick. So moving it one way might affect the electrical resistance of one of those two potentiometers and not the other. But knowing that, the PlayStation knows which way the thumbstick was moved and exactly how far it was moved, because this is in degrees, right? Maybe you move it one way, both potentiometers increase the electrical resistance. You move it another way, both the potentiometers decrease the electrical resistance. All of this is invisible to the player. You know, we would not be aware of it. But this is how the PlayStation is able to determine exactly where the thumbstick is at any given moment. And it gives very precise controls to the player. So a game developer can create a game where you can have these very precise requirements for players to maneuver their characters through. It's really what allowed game developers to create that frame-perfect kind of rage-inducing platforming game that I am so bad at. Anyway, that's how the thumbsticks work. Uh, and it's all about converting that information into essentially a, a location on an XY axis. It's just the same as if you were to get a bunch of chart paper and you were to start plotting points on the chart it's the same sort of thing. The points would represent the position of the thumbsticks. It's pretty neat. And and I think uh, it was a, a clever way to engineer these, uh, these thumbsticks in an analog way. Uh, now, not all games support this feature, right? Like some games might have it where you have a character and if you push the thumbstick a little bit, your character starts to creep across the screen. And if you push the thumbstick all the way to its stopping point, then your character will break out into a run. But some games take a more digital approach, meaning it's either happening or it's not happening. So if you push the thumbstick a little or a lot, your character moves the same either way. That, that sometimes happens. That's, that's sort of a good way of understanding the difference between digital and analog. Analog is a, is a nice smooth curve, right? It's, it's degrees. It's, uh, it, it, you're moving in a nice smooth motion from one state to another. Digital is much more step-like. It's either on or off, or it's in steps. So uh, it has a discrete amount that is added with each step. It's not something that's a smooth curve. Now, you can have lots of lo tiny little steps. And if you have enough tiny little steps, you can simulate a smooth curve. But in reality, if you were to zoom way in, you would see it's more like a staircase, not, a, not an unbroken curve the way analog is. Then there's the vibrating component to the DualShock controller. And this works the same way vibrating motors work in stuff like cell phones. And it's pretty simple. Got an electric motor, or in the case of a, a DualShock controller, you actually have two electric motors. They're both in the base on either side of the controller where your, your hands go. And on the shaft of this electric motor is a slightly offset unbalanced weight. And so as the shaft spins, that unbalanced weight 
causes some wobble in the electric motor, except the electric motor is actually firmly mounted inside the controller. It can't wobble because it's mounted to a, a larger structure. However, that wobble then gets transmitted to the controller as a whole as this sort of vibrating buzzing thing. And that's where that technology comes from is how it works. And it's used in all sorts of stuff like cell phones, for example, have these. If you have a cell phone with a vibrate function, that's what's happening. So let's jump back to the PS2. Now, as I mentioned in the last episode, the PS2 had a phenomenal launch and it would go on to become the best selling home console of all time as of the recording of this podcast. And in case you're wondering, second place would go to the Nintendo DS handheld system. And even that's about a million units behind the PlayStation 2. Pretty phenomenal, especially when you look at the, you know, the expense of both of those consoles and uh, the fact that the handheld one being portable has its own level of, uh, of pros and cons to it. I mentioned in the previous episode that Sony did not jump on the internet bandwagon right away. Back during the original PlayStation days, Sony did introduce a link cable that would let players link to PlayStation systems together for network play. You could do system to system play. However, that also required both of these consoles to be connected to their own respective television sets. So you would need two PS1s and two televisions to make this work, but it wasn't capable of connecting online. The PS2 initially didn't come out with any way to connect to the internet either. Instead, two years after they launched the system, Sony released a modem as a peripheral. Most of the PlayStation 2 models, and keep in mind, there were a lot of different PlayStation 2 models. You can say PlayStation 2, and you've got the same basic idea of what it is, but there are a lot of variations. The company would refine the design and production largely in an effort to streamline things and also to cut down on costs over the entire course of the life cycle of PlayStation 2. Anyway, the original ones had an expansion bay on the back of the console. So if you looked at the back of the console, you'd see that there was a cover and you could take the cover off and it would remove that uh, cover to the, the bay. You could see the bay. It was a compartment that was large enough to hold a hard drive. Sony would also introduce hard drives that you could purchase in addition to the base console. And it also had a port that the cover would cover up. Sony offered up a network adapter, which in North America had a phone jack and an ethernet port on it. Everywhere else pretty much just stuck with the ethernet port and it would fit on the back of the console. It would just plug directly into that, that port, that outlet I had talked about a second ago in the back of the PS2. It did not fill up the bay. It just covered up the bay. However, if you wanted to get a hard drive, you would need the network adapter and the hard drive you would connect the hard drive to the network adapter. Then you would slide the hard drive into the bay. It would be nestled in there. The network adapter would plug into the outlet in the PS2. So the network adapter acted as its own outlet for the hard drive. Now, you couldn't just bypass it. There were third-party companies that would make a, a type of uh, uh, plug that essentially acted like the network adapter, except it didn't have a network adapter in it. It was just the plug so that you could use your own hard drive. But that's another story. But now you could have online capabilities after running a special startup disk in, that is in your PS2, and you could play games online, certain ones, very few. Not only a few had online capability. The hard drive would let the PS2 load more game da data into uh, the, the memory area. Essentially, it was acting like memory. And it would bring loading times down during gameplay. And it could also be used as a memory card. You could store saves to the hard drive, for example. Some enterprising gamers even figured out how to load full games 
onto the hard drive using this system. And that removed the need to have a disk to run certain games. It also circumvented copy protection. So that would become something of a headache for Sony down the line. But not many people did it. The people who knew how to do it were doing it like crazy. But, but that was a small percentage of the overall population. The PS2 would also feature an innovation that Sony would build on later, and that would be the iToy, and that debuted in 2003. The iToy was essentially a webcam. You would set it on your television or a shelf or whatever. You'd plug it into the PS2. You'd have to adjust the focus manually. You know, you have to actually turn the lens to get it in focus. And you could play certain games through motion capture technology. Uh, One of my friends is actually married to a guy who worked on the iToy back in the day. So I got to hear all about it back when it was first launching. That was pretty cool. A typical iToy game would actually put you in the middle of the action. You would see a video image of yourself on the television. Uh, Your image was captured by the iToy. And so as you would flail around on the screen, you would get attacked by flying monkeys or whatever. So you'd swat at stuff that you saw on the screen and, uh, That's how gameplay typically would unfold. The iToy also featured a microphone, so it could pick up voice commands. So again, it's a little prescient. This was years before Microsoft would introduce the Kinect. That wouldn't come out until 2010. The iToy wasn't quite as sophisticated as the Kinect, that's putting it lightly, but many of the same design concepts apply to both pieces of hardware. Both have cameras and software or firmware. They could interpret your movements as input commands for games, And both were, you could argue, criminally undersupported. Games using the Sony iToy were few and far between. From what I can tell, there were fewer than 30 titles that actually required the iToy, and only eight of those were ever available in the United States. There were some other games that included iToy support, so it was an option, not a requirement, but those were more like games that had some added features. They weren't created with the iToy experience in mind. And most of those games would end up being really similar. Most of the iToy games that you could buy, they were all like variations on the same themes, like rhythm games that would require you to reach uh, towards certain points around you on a timed beat. So kind of like Beat Saber, but on a very primitive level. Uh, Or there might be a fighting game where you're, you know, moving your arms around, flailing wildly, trying to fight off a boxer or a martial arts opponent. You know, the the details changed from game to game, but the basic gameplay was really similar across the board. Microsoft would go through its own kind of the same story with the Kinect years later and also the second Kinect even after that. But that's a different story. Another game type debuted on the PS2 that required a peripheral, and that would be singing games. Harmonix was the first to do this with Karaoke Revolution in 2003, which shipped with a Logitech headset that included a microphone. Later, games like SingStar would launch with a handheld USB mic, or a pair of them, and you could plug them into the PS2. And both games had players try to match the pitch of a song that's indicated on screen. The closer you were to being on pitch, the higher your score would be. Harmonix would follow this up in 2005 with Guitar Hero and the iconic guitar-shaped controller that debuted on the PS2. So a lot of very innovative style games were starting to make their first appearance on the PS2, and that really helped the console as well. They had tons of iconic games from established developers, as well as uh, they were acting like a platform where you could find some really interesting or downright weird games from more obscure companies and developers. And that mix would be something that Sony would foster throughout the life cycle of the console and beyond. 
I'll talk more about them in a little bit later. And when we come back, I'll wrap up with the PS2, and then we'll start to look at the console that would follow in its footsteps by making some pretty drastic changes to the model. But first, let's take a quick break. So, the PS2 saw incredible success. That's putting it lightly. Huge games like God of War got their start on the PS2. Grand Theft Auto 3, which, while it was the third entry in a series, took a game that had previously been a top-down view game. You were looking at the world from above, and you would control a car that way. They switched it to a third-person style game. They helped launch the sandbox game genre. Not that it was the first or only one of its type, but it was one of the most popular ones, and it got a lot of other game developers getting into that realm of game, and we've seen so many since then. Shadow of the Colossus was a game that gave people who argued that video games are a form of art, that gave them a lot of momentum, because that game is gorgeous. The Final Fantasy series continued to dominate on the PS2. Uh, Ratchet and Clank became a franchise on the PS2. The series would go on through many future generations of the PlayStation console. Katamari Damacy was one of the stranger games for the console that got mainstream support. So if you don't know what that game is, you are in charge of rolling around a little sticky ball that picks up stuff in game environments. The ball gets bigger as you do it, and you pick up bigger and bigger stuff. And it's all so that you can rebuild the cosmos because your dad done blowed it up real good by accident. There are literally hundreds of popular titles on the PS2 that either got their start there or they found incredible success there. And just as Sony had done with the PS1, the company would continue to support the PS2 long after introducing the next generation of PlayStation. The PS2 would be in production well into the life cycle of the PS3. Uh, in fact, I want to say it was about 11 or 12 year life cycle. That's an incredible run. And uh, people were still buying PS2s and PS2 games well after the PS3 had hit the shelves. But now it's time to kind of switch over to the PS3. And this one is a really complicated story, largely because of some controversial decisions in the design process. Now, these weren't necessarily bad decisions, mind you. But Kudaragi, that's the father of the PlayStation, Ken Kudaragi, and his team had made some choices that would present some unique challenges to developers. So in 2005, Microsoft releases its second console, the Xbox 360, and that opened up the seventh generation of consoles era. The 360 got a head start on both Sony and Nintendo. Both of them would release their competing consoles, uh, the PS3 and Wii, respectively, in 2006, the fall of 2006. So Microsoft had kind of an open playing field to really establish itself for almost a full year. Now, if you've listened to the previous episodes in this series, you know that each generation of video game consoles has its own defining characteristics. The third generation of video game consoles was the 8-bit gaming system era, the original Nintendo, in other words. The fourth generation was a 16-bit system, like the Super Nintendo. The next generation, the fifth generation, was the 32-bit era. The sixth generation was sometimes called the 128-bit era, but that was about when we were finally getting away from using raw processing power as a way to describe consoles because it became less important. And we started to see this. In fact, we continued to see this where 
the hardware advances to a point where the the real differentiators lie not necessarily in the processing power, but in other ways that the console presents games. So the seventh generation saw the consoles diverging even more than they had before. On the Microsoft side, the Xbox 360 would really emphasize HD video games and online play with the Xbox Live service. That was kind of the bet they were they were placing. Uh, that sort of became the defining features for the Xbox 360, were the HD video gaming for an HD era and this online play approach. The Nintendo Wii marked N- Nintendo's decision to focus not on traditional stuff like graphics, but instead innovating in control systems like the Wiimote and the Wii Pad and new forms of gameplay. That was really where they were backing. Sony's PS3 was going with really incredible processing power, plus it included a Blu-ray player, which meant just as the PS2 would become a DVD player with benefits for a lot of people, the PS3 would do the same for Blu-ray. When Blu-ray players first came out, they were more than a thousand bucks. So when the PS3 first came out, it was pretty expensive too. It was like $600. So it wasn't cheap, but it meant that if you were in the market for a Blu-ray player, you might think of a PS3 because it could also play games, just like the PS2 could also uh, play DVDs as well as games. So maybe that was a deciding factor for a lot of people. Also, Sony had a big advantage over this because the company was behind Blu-ray player technology and Microsoft being a, a competitor, it would have been really hard to get that licensing agreement to get a Blu-ray player into a 360. That was a real sticking point. Oh, and also the PS3 would feature a radically different processing architecture that had a ton of potential, but threw up more than a few boundaries for developers. So the CPU was no longer the fabled emotion engine, although the early versions of the PS3 still retained emotion engine chips. Instead, we're talking about the cell processor which in turn was a short way of saying the full name, Cell Broadband Engine Architecture. The processor was a joint project between Sony, Toshiba, and IBM. And they called their partnership STI for short, the first letter of each of their company names. The Cell is a multi-core processor, something that's common these days, but was fairly new to the console world. It had been around for PCs for a while, but it was new for consoles. So what the heck is a multi-core processor? Well, I've talked about these a lot in previous episodes, but it's one of my favorite analogies. So we're going to do it again. Gosh darn it. So think of CPUs like they are math students. These are microprocessors, but imagine that they are math students. Now, let's say you've got a really powerful single core processor. And we're going to represent that by a super smart math student. Maybe she can solve complex equations in a third of the time of her fellow students. Then let's say we've got a multi-core processor. This means we have a processor on a single chip, but it has multiple units that each can process operations. They can do their own tasks and they all do work pretty well, but Individually, none of them are as good as that single souped up single core, right? They're, none of them are as powerful as that single core CPU. Uh, but each of, the, of these multi-core ones are good. They're just not great. This would be like a small group of smart math students. They're not as brilliant as the young woman who solves complicated problems in a flash. 
And let's say that this is a quad core processor. So we have four cores. We've got four bright math students in this analogy. Now, if you were to give the same math problem to the genius single core student and the four very smart but not as genius quad core students and then timed them, the single core would win out. The single core would finish the math problem first. She'd solve it the fastest. But let's say you hand out a quiz and the quiz has four math problems on it. And you tell the single core student that she has to solve all four problems. But you'd look at the four bright students, the quad core group, and you say each of them has to solve one problem on that four problem test. So they divide it up. Each student takes a different problem. In that case, you would expect the group of four students to finish first. They're not brilliant like the first student, but they're smart and they're each only having to solve one-fourth of the overall test. That is sort of how multi-core processors work. They're good at what is called parallel processing. That's when you have different processors tackling different operations all at the same time. And this only really works if the type of operations you're asking for it to do can be divided up like that. So if you need to do a single big task and there's no way to break up that big task into smaller tasks... Multi-cores don't have an advantage because the work can't be divvied up between them. But if the task can be separated into several different processes, then each core can take on a different part of that and the whole effort takes less time. And most of the processing that we work on tends to be in that category. Not all of it, but most of it. The cell processor in the PS3 had 234 million transistors on it spread across essentially nine processing chips. At the time, that was a big deal. A top-of-the-line PC CPU from Intel would sport 200 million transistors, and it would also set you back a cool thousand bucks in the US when the PS3 debuted in 2006. These days, though, companies like Intel rarely advertise the number of transistors on a chip, but we are easily in the billions range, like three to seven billion transistors on a single chip. We have left the millions far, far behind. But again, back in 2005, when they first unveiled the PS3 and then 2006, when it became available for purchase, this was incredible technology. The approach STI took in designing the cell was really interesting as well. So at the center of the PS3 cell was a power PC microchip with a clock speed of 3.2 gigahertz. You can listen to my earlier episodes about the PlayStation to hear more about what clock speed means. The chip had its own 512 kilobytes of RAM or random access memory, and the chip kind of acts like a supervisor. Its main job is to assign tasks to the eight coprocessors on the same CPU chip. And collectively, these are all called the synergistic processing elements or SPEs. So you've got a boss who takes in assignments and then parcels out those assignments to each of his direct reports, we'll say. And the direct reports are the SPEs. So the PowerPC core, aka the power processing element or PPE in this system, looks at what jobs need to be done. It looks at what the cores in the synergistic processing elements are already doing, right? Is is anyone busy? Uh, Are there people who have availability? And then the PPE, that PowerPC core, assigns jobs to available processors. It says, oh, well, processor number three is available, so I'll send this job to processor three. 
And we're getting to the real crux of what the PS3 was all about from the perspective of its creator, Ken Kutaragi. Now, in past episodes, you've heard me talk about Kutaragi leading the charge in Sony getting into the video game console business. He argued that it was something they definitely wanted to do, and no one really was giving him much attention about it. But as passionately as he argued about this stuff, it didn't mean that he was really that interested in video games. He saw it as an engineering challenge and a market opportunity, and also as a way that he could make his mark in the company and rise in the ranks. The cell architecture wasn't just about making the next generation game console. Ken Kuragi's long-term goal was to create a hardware architecture for all sorts of products moving forward. The PS3 would be the first uh, consumer electronics product to feature it, but the idea would be he would use this same architecture in all sorts of Sony products. It would be a stepping stone to even bigger things. It would perhaps even put him on track for leading the entire company, all of Sony, not just Sony Computer Entertainment, which is where he was he was currently uh, serving as the president, but to lead Sony overall, the Sony Corporation. So this was a really big deal for him. And the processor was super powerful for the time. And since that debut, there have been a few other computer systems that have taken advantage of that architecture. Uh, the cell design emphasized speed and a reduction in latency. Uh, latency is the lag we experience between when we submit an input and when we get an output. Generally speaking, the simpler the application and the simpler the machine, the lower the latency tends to be. So if you're working with something like a standard calculator, which by design only accepts limited kinds of input, and you do some simple arithmetic on it, you get results that are, to us, instantaneous. You can't even detect a delay. But as software gets more complex and requires greater amounts of processing power, stuff can slow them down. So in some applications, this can be irritating. In others, it can be dangerous. High latency in a standard video game is frustrating. Latency in a virtual reality game can be disorienting and cause motion sickness. You know, that's like if you turn your head in real life, but your point of view in the game lags behind, that can make you feel really sick to your stomach. I speak from personal experience. Latency in something like an autonomous car would be deadly. Well, in addition to these processors, the PS3 also boasted a graphics processing unit, or GPU, called the Reality Synthesizer, or RSX. This was developed in a partnership with NVIDIA, a company that's famous for its GPUs, and the RSX was similar in design to the NVIDIA GeForce line of processors. The, this one chip had 300 million transistors on it, so even more than the CPU did, but it operated at a much lower clock speed at 550 megahertz. Unlike the PS2, the PS3 came with an Ethernet port as a standard feature rather than as an add-on peripheral. However, originally it was supposed to have three Ethernet ports when it was first announced. When it debuted, that had been whittled down to one. Uh, it supported Bluetooth 2.0, and it had an optical audio output. I'll have to talk about optical audio in some future episode. It also had four USB ports for other accessories. It had an HDMI output to go to a television. Uh, it was actually supposed to have two of them, but that got whittled down too. And it also had composite, component, and S-video ports. 
And since we're on the subject, why not explain what those are really quickly or were? Most people these days wouldn't use them. HDMI is really the standard way to hook up a television to other components. But back in the day, we had a whole smorgasbord of options. So we're going to go from most primitive to most advanced. So that means we start with composite cables. These cables are uh, yellow video cables, and they're typically bundled with a red and a white cable. But the red and white cables aren't video. Those are audio channels. They actually carry audio to stereo channels, to the left stereo and the right stereo channels. The yellow cable carries a video signal, and these cables are limited to standard definition resolution, uh, all in one channel on the cable. So all all the data is in one channel of information. So this gives you the lowest resolution, the lowest uh, uh, color representation, like it's it's the lowest quality of all the different options. Next up, we have the S-video cable. Now that would carry two channels of video information. It separated the colors from black and white. So you got black and white in one channel and all the other colors in another channel. And that would create a better image quality than composite video. However, like composite, S-video cable was limited to standard definition signals of 480i or 576i for some markets. Then you've got component video cables. These cables were red, green, and blue, and they represented the three colors used to create all colors in video. However, they didn't each carry, you know, their respective colors. The red didn't carry red, the blue didn't carry blue, and the green didn't carry green. One cable carried luminance or brightness information, and the other two carried information about the hue of colors that should appear on screen. And through combinations of all of those elements, you could get a really wide uh, range of colors displayed on screen and brightness as well. And you could also get up to high definition levels of resolution, up to 1080i. So this was finally getting into the HD side of things. HDMI or high definition multimedia interface can carry uncompressed video and audio too. The other elements I just talked about, composite, component, and S-video, none of those carried audio. You would need separate audio cables to get sound from the PlayStation into your entertainment system. HDMI cables can carry both video and audio to the same source. So they are uh, superior in that respect. There's a whole thing I could go in about uh, with copy protection that relates to which cables would get supported or would lose support over time, but that's a topic for a future episode. Anyway, HDMI or high definition multimedia interface uh, is now essentially the standard we use to connect things together for video game consoles, DVD players, that kind of stuff to televisions. So the PS3 was the first of the PlayStations to have an HDMI port. Now the combination of the cell processor and the GPU made the PS3 a truly intimidating console. On paper, it clearly overshadowed the Xbox 360, and the Wii wasn't even in the same weight class. But that's on paper. In reality, Sony would see PS3 sales get off to a slow start and trail behind the Xbox 360, and even the Wii that would launch like a week after the PS3 would end up beating the PS3 in sales in many markets. So why is that? Why was the successor to the greatest selling video game console of all time more of a slow burn? Well, I'll tell you after we take a quick break. So, 
Ken Kutaragi made his big move, setting up the CPU system for the PS3 to be the foundation for a new generation of electronics and computer systems at Sony. That didn't turn out so well, and it's not because the tech wasn't good. For one thing, the new design required hundreds of engineers working primarily in Austin, Texas, and getting it right was challenging, so the project hit some delays, and that in turn made Sony have to push back the PS3's launch by about half a year, which gave Microsoft a lot more time to really entrench the 360 as the definitive seventh-generation game console, at least for a while. PS3 sales would ultimately eclipse Microsoft, but it took some doing. To make matters more complicated, Nintendo launched the Wii console shortly after the PS3 debuted, and at first a lot of people were ready to dismiss the Wii. The name struck many as being laughable, the console clearly didn't emphasize graphics or realistic gameplay, but Nintendo's strategy was to take aim at casual gamers, at non-gamers, maybe people who had been gamers but they hadn't really played any video games in years. Those kind of folks weren't really being marketed to, and Nintendo saw an opportunity. And people flocked to buy the Wii. It would lead to shortages in stores, so competition was stiff against Sony even when it launched. On top of that, Sony had to do some quick backtracking after receiving a powerfully negative reaction when showing off the PS3 and its new controller at E3 2005. So this is one year before the console was to launch. The new PS3 controller looked radically different from the basic design introduced with the PS1 and refined into the DualShock form factor. Uh, it had all the same buttons as those controllers, but it was a totally different shape. It was a boomerang shape and still had the two thumbsticks, still had all the old buttons, but this shape caught people off guard and a lot of people had a very strong negative reaction to it. I mean, it was meant so that you could hold either end of the PlayStation easily in your hands. Uh, at the E3 presentations, Kudaragi really didn't say anything about the controllers. They never got an official name to the public and the fan reaction was pretty brutal, so Sony made the call to scrap the Boomerang controller and to build out a new gamepad modeled on the more standard DualShock form factor, so the Boomerang never even made it to consumer stores. Instead, Sony would introduce a controller called the 6-axis, and it was called this because it included accelerometers inside the controller that could pick up movement along the X, Y, and Z axes, and that allows for six degrees of freedom of motion. So the controller could detect when and how it was moving, which in turn could be leveraged by game developers. So, you know, if you designed a game with this in mind, you could create one where, let's say it's a survival horror game, you know, something like Resident Evil, and it's got stealth-based mechanics in it where you need to be really quiet and sneaky so that the bad guys don't see you. And if you were to move too much while holding the controller as you're trying to sneak around, your character in the game would give away their position. You know, they'd stumble or they'd make noise or something. And they would become a target for some sort of cleaver-wielding pumpkin monster or something. One thing the six-axis controller didn't have besides the boomerang shape was a rumble feature. A lawsuit that was between Sony and a company called Immersion had led to Sony temporarily at least stripping the vibrating motors out of the six-axis controller. So the controllers that launched with the PS3 did not have haptic feedback. The six-axis controller would be the official controller for the PS3 for just two years, when the company would then replace it with the DualShock 3. I'll probably talk about that a little bit more in the next episode. 
But the controller wasn't the really big problem that Sony faced with the PS3. It really was that the architecture of that CPU was so different from what video game developers were used to. It took time, a lot of time, for game developers to really make titles that tapped into the PS3's capabilities. Essentially, developing games for the PS3 was hard. Specifically, leveraging those SPEs, that those eight co-processors effectively, was not easy to do. According to one developer, creating a hello world message, which is typically one of the first things any programmer does when they're learning, you know, how to code for any given system. Typically, that would require three to five lines of code for most systems. But to have one SPE processor use, take this request and, and follow it through would require an incredible 144 lines of code. Sony even took some amount of pride in this. They essentially said it all boils down to nothing worth having is ever easy. So they said, yeah, it's hard to program for this thing, but this thing is super powerful, so it's worth it. The design of those coprocessors made coding for them really hard to do, and using them effectively would be a big challenge. So many of the early games weren't great at showing off the PS3's true potential because they couldn't tap into that processing power. On top of that, many game developers were creating games that would be available on multiple platforms, right? Cross-platform game titles. Typically, that involves a core design team that are building out a game for a specific platform. Maybe the PC, maybe an Xbox, whatever. And then they port it over to other platforms. So many titles that were already available for the Xbox 360 were going through this porting process to the PS3, but due to that complexity in the PS3's design, the developers had to take a lot of shortcuts. Some of them even skipped using those coprocessors entirely. They said, these SPEs are too hard to code for. Instead, and you know, we're working on a time frame here. We could learn how to code for those SPEs, but it would set us behind schedule. So instead they focused on just that central power PC, you know, the, the one who was supposed to act as an administrator and hand out jobs. Instead of that, they're saying, no, 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 you do the work. Don't, don't hand it to your direct reports. We just want you to do it. So the power PC had to act as the CPU for the whole console. And so some titles that were available for both platforms, particularly early on in the PC, PS3's life cycle, just, they ran better on the 360. If you did a side-by-side -side comparison, the 360 just ran better. And it wasn't that the PS3 was not as good a system. It was a great system. It's that people had not figured out how to program for it effectively yet. So the development process in general was slow. And in gaming circles, this led to a somewhat incorrect observation that there were no games for the PS3. This is a meme. You can look it up. Now, the 360 had been around for months and had built up a pretty substantial library of games by the time the PS3 launched. So no matter what, Sony was going to be playing catch-up. But the general sense was that there just weren't enough really compelling titles on the PS3 early on, and thus PS3 doesn't have any games was born as a meme. And uh, you can see lots of different variations of that same statement. That wouldn't be true in the long run. I don't even think it was a fair assessment toward the beginning. The PS3 had games, and it introduced some games that in times that have passed have become real classics. So the original Uncharted came out. Uh, that was a game by Naughty Dog. That one came out for the PS3. 
So did Uncharted 2 and Uncharted 3. They all came out for the PS3. And this is a great example to show how developers got a better handle on the PS3 in general. Because if you were to look at a side-by-side comparison of the original Uncharted on the PS3 and then Uncharted 3, you would see an incredible jump in graphics quality. The two games would look like they belong to different systems. So with PCs, we expect this because developers are always pushing the limits of what hardware can do with every release of every title. But the PS3 is a video game console. You don't upgrade the GPU chip in a video game console. You know, when you buy it off the shelf, that console is that console for the life of that console. It doesn't, you don't, you don't take it apart and upgrade components. If you're going to do that, you should be a PC gamer. The hardware in a PS3 toward the end of the console's life cycle was identical to all intents and purposes as the hardware in the original PS3s that launched in 2006. The game developer, in this case Naughty Dog, just learned how to develop games for that hardware more effectively. They learned the system, so using the exact same hardware that they developed Uncharted 1 for, they produced Uncharted 3, and the differences are astounding. Naughty Dog, in fact, has even said that maybe Uncharted, the first game, took advantage of 30% of the PS3's processing power. So that all comes back to that complexity of learning how to program for the PS3. It was a real barrier. The PS3 supported some backwards compatibility, which honestly was a bit of an achievement considering how dramatically different the console's CPU architecture was from earlier models. The PS3 could play nearly all of the PlayStation 1 games, PS2 games were another story, and that one is a little more complicated. So the original PS3 consoles, often called the fat consoles because they were much larger than future models. You had the uh, the slim and the super slim PS3. But those original ones contained hardware that made them compatible with at least some, but not all, PS2 games. So you could get one of those original PlayStation 3s and you could still play some PS2 titles. However, future versions of the PS3 would remove that compatible hardware and you just couldn't play a PS2 game in a PS3, especially a hard disc. Uh, You could play PS2 games that were emulated to run on a PS3, but the, the experience wasn't always ideal. And there were a lot of different variations of the PlayStation 3 console, mostly in hard drive size. So you had 20, 40, 60, 80, and 160 gigabyte hard drive versions of the PlayStation 3 that were available at one point or another during its life cycle. Most models also supported Wi-Fi, so you didn't have to have a physical cable to connect to a network. Uh, One exception was the 20 gigabyte model. That one only had the hardwired Ethernet port, not a Wi-Fi connective ability. Now, this means for the early years of the PS3's life cycle, the console underperformed. This wasn't helped by the fact that the launch price for the PS3 was $600 here in the United States and made it the most expensive of the seventh generation consoles. And it would have been a challenge to overperform, obviously, because the company's expectations had to have been incredibly high given the amazing success of the PS2. They were probably thinking this was just going to be a a hockey stick, that it was just going to keep going up and up and up. Ken Kutaragi, who at this point was the head of Sony Computer Entertainment, must have had some complicated feelings about this. He had created an entire division within Sony, an entire business that Sony had not been in and had seen impressive success over the course of just a decade. But in November 2006, he would change positions, going from being the president and group COO of Sony Computer Entertainment to its chairman and group CEO. Now, 
that sounds like a promotion, right? President to CEO. But according to most sources I was reading, it was really showing that the company was moving him out of a role where he would have day-to-day operations control of the division. It was more of a general oversight, but he would no longer be the person calling the shots day-to-day. Sony was dealing with a serious shortfall with this PS3. The sales were falling behind Microsoft in those early days, and Nintendo's Wii was winning out as well. And I should add that when it was all said and done, when everything is done with the seventh generation of consoles, Wii would be the king. They sold far more consoles of the Wii Nintendo did than Sony or Microsoft did with their consoles. But then Sony would make up lost ground. It would actually take second place. So while the Xbox 360 led the way for most of the early years of the PS3, Sony would ultimately make up that lost ground before the end of its life cycle. Of course, this is also helped by the fact that Sony supports its consoles much longer than the other companies do. Howard Stringer, the CEO for Sony around this time, said that Kutaragi was a star executive with, um, let's say, communications issues. Stringer said that Kutaragi wasn't very good when it came to communicating with other folks in the company, including people higher up on the hierarchy, like his boss. He was seen as brilliant, but stubborn, difficult to work with, and maybe a little bit arrogant. Kaz Harai, who had been with Sony Computer Entertainment since 1995 and who had been a large part of the success story of the PS2, would shift from being the head of Sony Computer in North America to stepping in as president for the entire Sony Computer division, the global head of that part of Sony. And he would also later on go on to become the head of Sony Corporation overall. That, again, was probably something Kutaragi had hoped for at one point. He didn't make it his protege did. In 2007, Kutaragi surprised a few people by announcing he was stepping down and retiring. He would be named an honorary chairman of Sony Computer Entertainment, but his formal leadership role had come to an end. And so the father of the PlayStation would leave Sony. But the story of the PlayStation was far from over. So in our next episode, I'll wrap up the rest of the PlayStation 3 story, talking a little bit about the DualShock 3 controller, which would come out a year after Kutaragi left the company, and also how the PlayStation 4 changed direction again, how the course that was laid with the PS3 switched again with the PS4, and how that leads up to the PS5. I anticipate that next episode will be the last one in this in this uh, series for now with a little bit at the end to talk about the announcements of the PS5. We'll see. As you guys have noticed, I am loquacious in nature and sometimes these episodes end up having more to them than I anticipated. But if you guys have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, whether it's a quick one-off, maybe there's a company you want to hear about, a specific product you want to hear about, maybe there's a trend in technology you want to know more about, let me know. Send me a message on Facebook or Twitter. The handle for both is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 